Welcome to this edition of What's the Score? Let me remind you, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please click the like button wherever you listen to this program. And if you'd like to support this and future programs, I encourage you to become a patron via patreon.com. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the program. We couldn't do the program without our patrons, so thank you. And enjoy today's wonderful podcast. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, our guest isn't connected to the film industry per se, but that doesn't quis- uh, disqualify her in any way. She's a concert master with the Wichita Symphony Orchestra and a master violinist. Now, our paths crossed when she became the featured soloist of a concerto by film composer George Clinton, who was a past guest of the program. In fact, our first guest, actually. Her knowledge of music is unquestioned, and I think you'll enjoy getting to know her. It would take too long to share her many accolades, so we'll just kind of dive on in and learn about her as we go along. So I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming Holly Mulcahy to the program. Hi, Holly. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure, and I'm just delighted. I'm really excited about talking with you and learning more about you and, and also sharing some of your cues that I just love some of your selections. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just kind of dive on in. Okay. Uh, as most of my guests know and listeners, I always like to learn more about the person who uh, we're going to be talking about today. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing with us a little bit about, you know, your background, your growing, where did you grow up and family and hobbies and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And for a musician, having two parents who weren't musicians was kind of unusual, but I think it was kind of a blessing in disguise, meaning that they were able to offer me a, a really great worldview and life perspective. My, my mom was a dental assistant and my dad worked with United Airlines. Then both of them 
were just, they're very, very curious people, started working with the Denver Zoo and became um, you know, docents there and eventually oh, wow. started traveling around the country and living on wildlife refuges. So they, they lead a very wild and cool life. And, and, <laughs> and, and for me as a musician, looking at them and how they, they observe the world has given me the kind of grounding that I, I don't think many people get. And I feel very lucky that they have installed curiosity into me. Yeah, that's interesting because most of our guests usually had one member of the family that was very seriously into music. Um, and, and, and yet, I mean, I know there, there's a little bit of music in your family background from what you and I have talked about, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, what, what drew you to that? Because I know you were, you know, up until a point, you were kind of like an ordinary kid growing up in Colorado <laughs> and doing hiking and fishing yeah. and, you know, doing all kinds of outdoor stuff and that sort of thing. So what drew you to music? Well, I, I have... Um always loved music and it was a very big part of my life just from simple going to Saturday movies with my dad or watching movies at home and and listening to the music um, was a very big part of it my dad uh, always made it clear that you know certain music makes you feel this way or feel that way Um, you know there's there's a surprise coming because you can hear it in the music so it was it was his I don't think he was even guiding me. He was just having fun sharing what he loved. It was his way of listening that kind of helped me learn to listen more than any other music teacher early on in my life. I think it was my parents who helped me learn to listen. And so it was when I was in a general music class and I heard Scheherazade for the first time and the way that each each section of Scheherazade had a had a character associated with it. The violin solo represents a princess who uh, was very powerful and very smart and savvy, and and um, that just spoke to me. And that's what kind of steered me into playing the violin, is that that narrative power. But it was the deep listening that I, I think I I was already attuned to doing. Now, now as a young person, I'm kind of guessing playing the violin wasn't exactly the coolest thing to do. No, it definitely was not the coolest thing to do. I mean, you know, playing electric guitar maybe or drums, but violin. Yeah. All the all the cool kids in my school, all the cool girls played the flute. Oh, that okay. The instrument. I I just really wanted to play the flute just to fit in, but I'm so glad I didn't. So so glad. Do Do you play other instruments out of curiosity? Oh, not really. No. <laughs> Yeah. Not at all. You know, I started with piano, but that I don't enjoy playing it. And um, my brother's a trombonist, and of course I tried playing it just to see, you know, how, how hard it is. And, you know, it's fun, but I appreciate other instruments, I think, more than the ability to actually play them. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, the way that you and I became connected was, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, through a, our first guest on the program, actually, was composer George Clinton. And uh, he had written a concerto uh, called The Rose of Sonora. And there's no way I'm going to be able to describe what, what kind of went on with that and how that came about. So I'm kind of curious if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners what the uh, the genesis of that uh, concerto was and how you got connected with it and, you know, so on and so forth. Sure. Well, I, um, to, to give background, I love Westerns. The, the music from the westerns, not necessarily the movies. I, I love the music. <laughs> and um, every summer I play in the Grand Teton Music Festival out in Wyoming. And when I would drive 
it's about a 24-hour drive. You know, you'd stop in North Platte, Nebraska, and, and fuel up and, and um, go the next day for another 12 hours. And it was the mixtape kind of CD my husband had put together for me of basically 20 hours of, of the best Westerns musics. Oh, wow. That, you know, the, all, all the Westerns you can think of, I had the soundtracks on about 20 hours of music. And that was my, you know, the final trek through the, the plains and the, um, the kind of the badlands and into the, the mountains and just the grand vista of going west with that those soundtracks. Um, just it really put me in a mood. I, I just love the way they made me feel. And spending about five or six weeks out there, each summer I usually let my guard down. And one particular summer I really let my guard down and put on Facebook that if there was a Western-style violin concerto, I would be all over it. And uh -oh. as, after I hit send, you know, put it on Facebook, I thought, there goes my career. Uh -oh. No, Nobody's going to take me seriously. I should be, you know, like every You're a other serious girl. musician, for God's sake. <laughs> well, now I'm not. <laughs> and I should be like every other, you know, what I consider normal musician and like Schubert and Mozart, but I, I really preferred Morricone over Mozart, and... Um, I thought, well, there goes my career. And within seconds, people from around the world, just famous musicians and respected conductors said, that's a really great idea. And I'm like, yeah, of course it's a great idea. <laughs> and I know, I know people. So I contacted George and asked him. I, I didn't think he would say yes, but I thought, I'm just, I have to ask. And he said yes. And not only did he give me the, the soundscape of a genuine Western, he added another component, which was a story, a narrative. So it's very much like a movie, but for your mind. And it was that narrative of a female outlaw that kind of um, carries the, the whole story, which is, to me, it's like a modern-day Scheherazade. Oh, wow. I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm reminded of uh, my favorite composer, John Barry, had, had written a, a, he had a concept CD called Eternal Echoes, and people said, well, it, it, this, you know, you, you usually write for films. Is is this a film score? He said, "Of course, it's a film score. I, I just don't have any film," and and that's what this kind of sounds like. He just kind of created his own film in his own mind, and well, that's a great description of it. Far better than I could do. Well, I'm I'm delighted that that George has allowed us to play a short clip of this. You're you're performing this around the country, uh, very symphony orchestras on occasion. Uh, by the way, I would like for you and George to come to Louisiana. Just to, you know, just saying. <laughs> um, uh, but but uh, you know, and 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 well, at the end we'll talk about how they can keep track of where it's being performed and those sorts of things. But we are going to play a, a short clip from um, from the uh, the fifth movement, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. Tell us a little bit about what that what we can expect to hear in this particular piece of music that we're going to share. Yeah, this is. Um the concerto is in five scenes. George calls them scenes instead of movements because okay. they are very, you know, visually oriented. People can imagine whatever they want. And the general story arc is the first scene, Rose rides into town and breaks her lover out of jail. And then together they, they ride off to a, a secret mountain hideaway. And they, of course, have the ill-gotten gold in the saddlebags. <laughs> and then the third movement, or the third scene, the old gang hunts them down and kills Jed, Rose's lover, and in wounds Rose, leaving her for dead. And the fourth scene is, is the most sad and gorgeous scene of the whole concerto. 
and that's, you know, Jed is dead, and uh, Rose buries him. And the fifth scene, which you're about to hear, is the moment when Rose saddles her horse and loads her guns and outrides and outshoots all of the old gang and gets the gold back, which they stole when they came and killed Jed. Um, and then at the end of that, she rides off into the red Sonoran sunset, just like every <laughs> epic Western, you know, it, it ends with the good, the, the good guy or the good gal, in this case, riding off. with and, the and, and I must tell you, when you listen to this, you can see everything that Holly just described. You actually can. You not only see it, but feel it. So yeah. let's, uh, let's listen for ourselves. This is, again, from the concerto called Rose of Sonora. It's written by composer George Clinton. Sit back and enjoy.
One of the things I mentioned in the uh, in the introduction of you and in, in reading up about you a little bit, um, and this is again because of my ignorance, so that's why I'm going to ask the question. <laughs> what does a concert master do? What is a concert master? Oh, it's it's the first chair violin, and okay. if you think about it like a, a quarterback, um, you, you, you look at the conductor like the coach or the the head of an organization. Uh, the 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 concertmaster is the second face the audience sees after the conductor, and some of the logistical things that concertmasters do are um, convey the intentions of the conductor to the orchestra and vice versa. You know, if there's something that is needs to be said to the conductor in in uh, to cover everybody in the orchestra's wishes, that that is usually generally how it how it goes. Also, the concertmaster is a liaison to the audience, um, along with the conductor. And um, for me, I, I find great importance with the chair, meaning that it's like a, uh, it's a platform, really. And it, it's a place that I can speak to audiences to build bridges. And that's where my, my position in Wichita is extremely unique is I'm also the partner for audience engagement. Huh. And so it's not just I'm, I'm putting bowings in the in the parts for string players, which means you go up bow or down bow to you know make sure everybody's in the same part of the, the bow, uh, but I'm also building connections and making the music relevant, approachable, and real to the audience so that they actually feel like they matter. And I think Wichita Symphony is one of the only orchestras in the country that has created a position like this, and it's allowed me to really build the ties and to see how, you know, how some kind of position like this can bring in more audiences, younger audiences, newer audiences, people you don't expect to come into the hall, feel welcome. And I I take great joy and great pride in in building those bridges because of that. uh, I bet you do. Now... Now, and again, I'm I'm going to show my inexperience. I've been I've been to a couple of events with symphony orchestras. If I recall correctly, first chair violin, you you come out separately from the rest of the orchestra, right? And and Generally. take a bow, if you will, and get applause and stuff, right? Oh yeah, I mean it's a formality. Right. Basically, it's just to kind of let the audience know here's the start of the concert, and it's one last chance for the orchestra to tune. Um, right, because it, you, you, you play, I don't know, middle C or whatever it's called, and, and everybody tries to duplicate it, correct? Yeah, well, I basically look at the oboe player, and they play an A, and then um, basically I'll, I'll dictate when people tune. Um, it, it's more of a formality anymore. Most uh, This is a, a secret for your audience. Most orchestras tune backstage, <laughs> so it's just <laughs> Okay, it's your just secret's a safe with us. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like breaking down all the, all the barriers and, and giving people the little behind-the-scenes kind of things. Well, I love uh, it, though. No, I bet, but, but, I mean, you take a great deal of pride in that, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's just the, the thing that's so great about the Wichita Symphony is it's it, – it allows me to do other things like the Rose of Sonora and um, the blog and a couple other things in my life. And the balance is, is what I find really rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've mentioned your uh, love of Western music, which we're going to be featuring in a couple of different cues today of that. Uh, the next one of which is from uh, Django Unchained. You've mentioned uh, the maestro Morricone. Yes. And, uh, this cue is called Brain Mule. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. Well, to pick up Morricone, 
it's, it's really hard. I love all of his Western music. I, I like this one because it just, it's been used in, in a number of cues and a number of different uh, covers, I guess, if you will. Um, but in Django Unchained, it, it's um, the dentist uh, truck, or not truck, but the dentist wagon is, is coming into town. And um, it's just the, the way there's this gigantic comical tooth on top of this wagon that's kind of announcing the dentist. And it's just, I don't know, it's just the way that it's just kind of bouncy. I don't think uh, Morricone intended it for that kind of a cue. I'm sure it was a different uh, Western, very, very different than, than Django Unchained. But I just like the vibe that it sets up. And um, this was one of the the many Morricones on my my mix tape, if you will, when I would drive out <laughs> west. <laughs> no, I understand. No, it's terrific. I think our audience will enjoy it. Well, let's listen to this uh, this cue. This is from uh, uh, Django Unchained. Uh, the cue is called Brain Mule, and it's written by the maestro Ennio Morricone. alluded to this but it's maybe you can expand on it a little bit I'm, I'm you talked about the influence your dad had on uh, when you would watch movies to kind of listen to the music what is it that 
Maybe you can expand on a little bit more about what is it that interests you about uh, about film music? I think how, for me, learning film, you know, about film music at a, such a young age, it, it filled in a lot of blanks for me as far as like um, shortcuts, basically, of verbs and adjectives and, and emotions where you, you instantly knew something was going to go down or you instantly knew something was supposed to be funny without having a big draw up. It's, it's just a big shortcut. And the way that film music manipulates you, I think, is just an absolute superpower. And that, that just haunted me and captivated me as a, as a young kid. Um, my first movie that I can remember was um, my dad took me to see Moonraker. I think we yeah. watched it at home. <laughs> it's not, and I'm looking back because we Good just choice. watched. We just watched that movie the other night, my husband and I, and like I can't believe my dad took me to see. This. <laughs> <laughs> how, old, how old were you? I I think I I don't know if we went to the theater, but I, I was six, and it, I think the movie had been out for a while. Um, it must have been one of our Saturday mornings or Saturday afternoon movies that was just on at home. But um, you know, watching it again, I was like, dang, this is. This is really racy. I mean, it's, <laughs> for a six-year-old, it is. Yeah, it's a terrible movie, but the music is so good, and just the way that that soaring theme happens, and the way that um, you know the the emotions get get placed exactly where they should be. Without that music, that it just would have been nothing. So that's yeah. that that kind of informed how I, I listen to everything else. And, and we're going to play something from that film in, in a little bit. Uh, but it also brings to mind: have, have you ever had the privilege to, uh, to watch a rough cut of a movie with with no music? Oh, that, that's brutal! Absolutely uh, brutal, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's amazing how much it adds, and and or how much it subtracts. If you know another way of looking at it, it it, it just fall. A lot of things just fall flat. It's just uh, it's it's quite amazing. Now, you know, I'm kind of curious. I was going to save this for later, but I'll ask it now. Um, as a musician, how do you feel about, because there's a lot of film scores right now, a lot of them, and I'm sure it's probably for budget reasons, that are, I, you probably know where I'm going with this, that, um, <laughs> that, that will use, you know, computer-generated instrumentation, or for lack of a better way of saying it. Uh, and, and, you know, to be fair, it actually sounds, sounds pretty good. It sounds good. Not great, yeah. but it sounds pretty good. What are your thoughts on that? And does, as a musician, does that concern you? Well, always it concerns me. Um, and you know, I was just having this conversation uh, with our music director last week in, in Wichita, actually, about when you hear music that's like authentic and and made by real people and it's just slightly out of tune it's like thank goodness it's a human playing <laughs> uh, and and for for you and your listeners you go to any like morricone uh original recording and you, the trumpet players are never in tune but that's part of the color and when you when you've got a clean in tune everything is just you know pitched perfectly made by computers it's it's good it's just there's some texture lacking, some kind of color that's lacking, um, and I can't quite put my finger on it. I, of course, I, I always want and advocate for using people, but yeah, I understand budgets. Um, I just hope that there's some way to work through that and use more people. Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to envision people showing up at a concert hall 
it could be for any you know film music classical whatever and on the stage is just like one big computer <laughs> you know yeah oh okay yeah this is gonna be great i mean so <laughs> hopefully it never comes to that my goodness i hope not yeah, i think one of the, yeah. the 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 cool things when you go to a live concert is is seeing the people working and sweating and oh, emoting yeah. and and feeling it and then sometimes you know you can can catch like a cellist looking across the orchestra to a violinist and you know a smile or a, a you know a knowing look you know you you can't get that with a computer i i think some of the best experiences i've had watching a symphony orchestra is watching them perform to picture or to a film i mean that that's become a popular concept in the last few years yeah where where i, I don't know if you well, i'm sure you know what i'm talking about where the, oh yeah i've know, done those the the, the, the the end thing is john williams stuff i wish they'd branch out into some other people but, but you know like et i think was it et or i can't remember what it was but i it was one of those i saw where they play the movie and and you can see on the screen when when the when the orchestra and the conductor is being cued to get ready, and then they start playing. And you're exactly right. It 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 uh, the power of watching them perform it, and and also seeing the pictures on the screen is is just it's amazing. I think having one of those live concerts to uh, movie screen concert things is it absolutely gives the audience a a bigger picture well picture is not the right word but just that bigger impact feel um of of the entire you know movie i mean it's one thing to sit in a theater uh a movie theater and, and listen to the you know the soundtrack as the movie goes on but to actually feel the impact of a live orchestra playing you know the those great soundtrack scores that's that's something that's just completely unique yeah, yeah. Let's um, let's listen to another cue that you had chosen, which is a little different than some of the others. This is uh, from the film Matrix. It's the main theme from it, written by Don Davis, and I guess some other people contributed to it. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to uh, share that with our listeners today. Yeah, when I when I saw the movie in the theater, um, the first thing I did at you know when the when the movie was wrapping up in the credits is like, I've got to find out who this composer is. Um, it's, it sounded just, it was like no other score I'd ever heard. It was just so uniquely appropriate for the material on, on the, in the film. Um, so from the movie theater on my way home, I stopped and bought the soundtrack, <laughs> bought wow. the CD. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. And I even remember calling my brother, who's a musician in the National Symphony, he's the principal trombone, and was like, have you heard this music? It is so cool. I mean, it's like Stravinsky on crack or something. It just was just <laughs> so just um, mesmerizing and terrifying and evocative all at the same time. And just the way the, the Don... Davis used the the dynamics of bringing in certain sections of the orchestra and then eclipsing with another section of the orchestra. It was just genius. And it just kind of reiterated the, the feel of that movie, which was dark and, and edgy and scary and super uncomfortable. And I thought, what a perfect score. So that's why I, I chose this. Excellent description. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This, again, is the main theme from the film called Matrix, and it's written by composer Don Davis.
you'd be the perfect person to ask, and I'd be curious about your opinion on this. What's what's the status of classical music today? That is uh, about a five-day, twenty-four-hour each day kind of answer. Yeah, um, I, I knew. <laughs> I know it's a big question, but yeah, and the status is it, it's two part. Um, there's the perceived part of it's stuffy and it's exclusionary and unapproachable. And then there's a reality that classical music is something that we all are familiar with. We don't have to know who Mozart is or have heard of him, but we pretty much know his music as a society. Um, yeah. And it's it's just, you know, our, our phone rings, our Beethoven Symphony 5, um, you know, our car commercials to, to express luxury, they, they pick a Mozart symphony or a Brahms piano concerto. And, um, you know, it, it's just very much woven into our society, but we don't talk about it in, in that way. And, and yet, would you say that the modern day version of classical music is film music? Absolutely, 100%. And I, I like to kind of say that basically Hollywood is our modern day Vienna um, where the huh. operas operas back in you know the heyday of Vienna and, and even in, in Italy um, that you know people would get excited about the overtures and that was that was their pop music and in the same way that we listen to film music today in our society in America especially that that is very much part of our culture, but there's a, a snobbery about, you know, film music as pops music. No, it's really not. It's just, you know, the same DNA as, as, a, as an overture for an opera. It's, it's, it's just um, expressing a, a feeling about a, about a story. Um, we, uh, we just really need to embrace that more in this country. Are, are you concerned? Because, well, I don't want to prejudice your answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> film music a lot of it coming out today I'm not talking about the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years but it, it seems to me a lot of the film music today is kind of moving away from more of that so-called classical sound quote unquote what are your thoughts on that? Well yeah I think uh, you know and to bring up what we just spoke about a little bit earlier if you know, budget. Um, yeah. I think that has to to play a lot in it. Um, you know, if you don't have the the budget for a full size orchestra and and all the bells and whistles, you're going to be, you know, less less open. I think. Also, um, I get the impression that a lot of uh, minimalist kind of uh, approaches are 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 trending. Um, <clears throat> I don't think. Uh, I don't know. I I, I hope that it. You know, melody prevails. Um, yeah. As, as far as in film music, I mean, I, I think there's still a lot of really great um, f film uh, soundtracks coming out, but nothing like you know in the '60s and the '70s, uh, the '50s, the '40s, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, and I guess what it strikes me, you, I'm not even talking about computers trying to duplicate the sound of an orchestra. I'm talking about right. The, the, the electronic sounds that are starting to be used. And I realize, you know, innovation and trying to do something different, come up with unique sounds, I can appreciate that. But but it, it seems to be losing, uh, you know, again, I'm not a musician. It's hard for me to express it. But it just it seems to be losing that classic sound that 
that I, I love so much. Maybe it's just because I'm an old fart. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to take a, a different uh, different avenue on this, too. If you look okay. at, like, uh, Star Trek Lower Decks, which is an animated, fantastic series. I can't write. It might be on Paramount. I, I can't remember exactly. But it, it is uh, legit Star Trek. I cannot remember the composer's name, but that is some of the best uh, film-sounding music and that's streaming streamable series and so that that soundscape is there and i don't know if that composer is using a, a full orchestra of, of people or if it's just uh, replicated um, symphonic sounds but definitely check out star trek lower decks that soundtrack is just fierce oh good <laughs> so good. good that's good to hear that's encouraging to hear that's yeah. great the um yeah i, I think you're going to geek out over it yeah the next cue we chose, or that you chose, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and I mean that in a, the most positive way, because a lot of times people don't choose a song. But you did. Yeah. Uh, and, and it happens to be one of my favorites, and, and my listeners will know why. We're <laughs> talking about the theme song from the uh, James Bond film called Thunderball, sitting by Tom Jones. Tell us a little bit about... Because you've chosen these kind of, you know, more classical orchestral pieces, and then you choose this bombastic <laughs> title song. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. Well, it, first of all, I'm a huge James Bond film fan, um, and I love all the music. And, and it was an absolute torture to pick one for your show, um, or even two or three. And it's impossible. <laughs> um, I could probably go on about the other films and why they're awesome as well. But this one... Um, also, it has a very nostalgic feel. This is another one that I remember watching with my my dad on, like you know, a snowy Colorado evening at home. Um, another very inappropriate. I'm like, I can't believe we watched it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's probably more inappropriate in that one than there was a oh, movie. Oh, it was cringy, absolutely <laughs> cringy. That's why but, I love it. <laughs> no, no, it, it's a it's a guilty pleasure. But the music. Um, I think as cringeable, or if that's even a word, as cringy as some of the actors, Sean Connery's, um, uh, you know, actions are in that movie, the music will stand the test of time. The, the, the acting and the, the, the toxic masculinity will not, not stand the <laughs> test of time. But I, I love how brash and bold and ballsy that, that opening is. It's just, it knocks you out. It lets you know... This is going to be a very serious um, movie, and, and, it, and it's just delicious, the, the richness and the, the, the way that music, that first chord just hits you. And I think uh, this may have been, I could be wrong, the, one of the first Bond films where it was a male singer singing. Yeah. Um, and that also struck me. Um, so between that, it just it was just the fat brass sounds. It was just luxurious to me to my ears and I just I don't know I love it yeah no I do too and I and and I'll bore some of my listeners with this and I don't know if you're familiar with this at all uh concerning this theme one it was interesting as some of the critics because it followed the movie Goldfinger some of the people called this song Thunderfinger (laughs) you know thinking that it was trying to go off of that but what's even actually more interesting I don't know if you were aware of this he uh Barry had actually written a different theme song for the movie called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, yeah, sung uh, by it, Shirley Bassey and it, by Dionne Warwick. Very good. You yeah. get bonus points for knowing that. <laughs> and if you listen to the score, that, that melody from that song is featured throughout the movie, more right. so than the theme from Thunderball. And it was only at the last minute they decided to 
you know, have a different tune and whatnot. But still, I thought he, you know, like you, I thought it was a knockout and it was terrific. So yeah. let's uh, let let's let the music do the talking for itself. This is the uh, the main title from the film Thunderball. It's the song written by John Barry and Don Black, and it's sung by Tom Jones. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. And I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. 
Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. One of the things I noticed uh, in your bio, and, and again, I, I don't have a real appreciation of this, so perhaps you can help me understand it a little bit more. What is it about your violin that makes it special? Because apparently it's a very special violin. Yeah, it's a, it's a, just turned 100 uh, years old a few years ago. Wow. It's, uh, which is kind of a baby in the grand scheme of things. I <laughs> mean, if you look at a Strad, they're you know, near, near 300 years old, getting close to 300 years old. Um, but my violin was owned by the world-renowned violinist Eugene Fodor, who was the first American to win the um, International Tchaikovsky Competition. I think he won the Paganini Competition as well. And that was just, it was so huge when he won Tchaikovsky, having an American win a Russian competition. It really set a tone. I studied with the same teacher as Eugene uh, about 30 years after him. And um, we both grew up in Colorado. So to me, Eugene was kind of like, well, if this country kid can make it out of Colorado to being a classical musician, I can. So I, I kind of looked up to him. And one day I was getting my bow rehaired at this violin shop and Eugene was there and he was dropping off a violin to be sold. And so I picked it up, tried it and I'm like, never gave it back. And uh, <laughs> I like, I like it. It's a, it's a Cavani built in Modena, Italy, where balsamic vinegar and Ferraris are are manufactured oh, wow. and um, it's just it's got a real honest sound it doesn't have one of those sweet um, throaty sounds like a like a Stradivarius but it's got a real honest sound it, it can growl if I need it to and it can you can sing if I need it to and um, I, I've been enjoying playing it for for a while now how how closely do you guard that I mean I <laughs> I can't imagine having something that special and being you know scared every single moment if you go on an airplane or in a car or or, 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 you know, whatever. I mean, is it kind of a little bit intimidating to say, i got to take care of this? Well, it's a pain to carry on an airplane because, I, you know, I get on board early and I put it in the bin above. And then, you know, people want to shove things around. They don't realize it's a fragile instrument. I'm sure it's in a case, but still knocking it around is, is not something not I enjoy. Not a good thing. Yeah. No. So I, I, it's, it's never real, a real joy to travel but that's all I do is traveling with it. <laughs> so I'm sure you have a specially built case or at least something that's, you know, you can feel pretty confident about. It's pretty decent. It's not infallible. I mean, I certainly don't want to drop it by any means. Boy, no kidding. I mean, I, I just, I can't even imagine having something that special and wanting to take care of it. 
That's yeah. a that's that's a neat story. Neat story. You um. The next cue we were going to play is. It's one of my favorite scores. I would. I could easily put this in my top twenty, maybe even my my top ten. I don't know. And a lot of my listeners will be surprised when I say this, because mm. it's kind of quirky and weird. But boy, does it work for the movie, and it's a very listenable on CD. The film I'm talking about is Wild Things, and it's written by who we've talked about here just before, uh, composer George Clinton. Uh, this is going to be the end title sequence. Tell me a little bit about uh, why you wanted to choose that to, to share with our audience today. Yeah, this much like Matrix, when I heard Wild Things, I had to buy the CD. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the same way. Yep, I'm the uh, same way. Guilty, guilty pleasure. I, it, when you listen to it, you know... You just get the feeling of the movie. You don't even have to know what the movie's about, but you instantly, you know, understand when you listen to the <laughs> when you listen to the various cues in this thing. It's dirty. It's sultry. It's dangerous. It's a mis- mysterious. It's wrong. It's creepy, and it's so perfect for this um, this movie. And if if your listeners, they probably know, but if they don't know, it you know, it starts off in this kind of a swampy kind of Everglades. Um, scene and and you get this sultry, rich, warm, humid feel um, yeah. in in the thing. But the the very opening of the the vocal solo just it sets the entire mood. It's like where's this going to go? And that's the mood you have through the whole movie when you're watching it. Where's this going to go? It's it's a big question to me. Yeah, I mean it's and it's one of these. I mean, there's a lot of scores that 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 fit this description, but. What I do like about it is that not only does it work perfectly for the film, in in my view, it's great as a standalone experience as well, and you can't say that for all film scores. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way that George uses the percussion and the, the, oh. the bass, you know, the sliding, and it just, everything is so delicious and so on point with, with um, you know, getting an emotion and getting a, a feel. I mean, I almost feel like I should be smoking a cigarette when I, when I watch this. And I don't smoke, but, I mean, you just, like, instantly feel about a 1,000% cooler than you, you really ought to be when you're listening to this music. What a great description. I can't, I can't top that. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's have a listen for ourselves. This is, again, from the film Wild Things, and it's written by composer George Clinton.
Another thing I noticed in your uh, bio was a uh, uh, an interesting project that you're uh, in heavily involved in called Arts Capacity. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, what that's all about? Yeah, it's a, a nonprofit that I started down in Chattanooga when I was concertmaster with Chattanooga Symphony. Um, I decided, you know, since I've got the, this platform of concertmaster, I should be out in the community doing things. and. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do on my spare time was to visit uh, prison and bring in music. And hmm. what we found is bringing in music, it's something that I do, it's just a very it, much my personality is I don't really want to play at people and say, here, take this, consume it, you know. I want to hear how you feel about the music that I just played. And so what we started at the Walker State Prison down in Georgia, which is just across the state line, is a two-way conversation. Uh, as soon as I would play some music, I would um, ask immediately what the prisoners uh, felt, and they shared some of the most insightful and deep and just really meaningful comments. And we've been going about seven years now. Wow. The, the program has been um, you know, slowly building. We, we now have a couple of prisons in Kansas. So we've got uh, three prisons we actively take music into and collect data from of how the music is helping some pro-social behavior, some emotional intelligence, um, how people are be able to connect with their families through music and um, really give the uh, prisoners uh, a way to kind of capture their emotions and also to express themselves better with their families. It gives them, you know, something to talk about with their families as well when they when they do talk. The other goal is to help with recidivism. And I know that sounds really kind of silly, but music does help like a tool. It helps you access and kind of use uh, to kind of tame tempers and, and emotions and, and having an outlet through oh, music yeah. really allows for that. And so it's a skill to be learned. And when we you know, go into prisons and offer music, we are very aware that these people will be our future neighbors. They will get out. And to have music as a tool to you know, help emotions, you know, when you're feeling down, you can use it to help bring you up and uh, other things. Uh, that, that's our primary goal. It's been a wonderful discovery. Wow. What a, I'm, I'm blown away by that. <laughs> that's really interesting what you're doing, and it's, it's obviously making an impact. That the, congratulations on that. You should be applauded for it. That's terrific. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, we've mentioned this already once before. And, of course, my listeners will know I'm delighted to share this one as well. 
you mentioned that when you were a small child of six, that you watched a film called Moonraker. Yes. And uh, one of the cues that you wanted to share from that film uh, is a favorite of mine, and it's a theme that was used several times throughout the series, written by John Barry. Uh, the original theme was just called simply 007, but in the film Moonraker, it's referred to as Boat Chase. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that uh, particular cue. Well, once again, it it's really hard to pick any John Barry cues because they're all so good. Yeah. Um, I this was a big nostalgia one for me just because it captured a lot of you know the essence of all the the James Bond films the best. Um, this one just it, it, for me is typical Barry, um, where he, he captures some kind of a a, a cheeky a cheekiness, um, if you will to the the action scene um i don't know if this cue would work in a modern day action scene but it sure works in the boat chase in in moonraker and the the other similar similar spots i think this was used in in um what uh thunderball as well if i recall well yeah it was originally used in for much with love then he reused it in thunderball and then he reused it in uh, diamonds are forever and then finally moonraker but but it all took on a different flavor it was very much uh it was a lot brassier in its earlier versions, and of course, this one in Moonraker is more symphonic, for lack of a better way of saying it. And it's a little slower than yeah. the, the others. I don't yeah, know, I just like it. <laughs> yeah, and yet I think it works in every film. It works just fine. So I read somewhere where he was inspired by the Magnificent Seven with the the beats in the Magnificent Seven that that was used for this. Could so. very well be the case. I I've not read that, but I I wouldn't doubt you on that. <laughs> that, that that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, let's uh. Let's have a listen for ourselves. This again is from the uh, film called Moonraker. The cue is referred to as Boat Chase and it's written by, in my opinion, the maestro John Barry. talking about film music and other than Rose of Sonora which there technically is not a film have have you had the honor or the privilege to actually play on a film score before I have never played on a film score but I've played one of those live uh, orchestras with the with the film behind it I've done a few um, oh, okay 
you know, the uh, American in Paris and, um, oh gosh, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> there's some there's some old ones that they, were, they did an American in uh, Paris really with a live orchestra. So. Wow! Yeah, and then uh, what else was there? It was uh, the Wizard of Oz? Oh um, wow! I've done I've done a few. They're yeah. they're they're always a challenge. Um, and of course the Bugs Bunny uh, show with George Doherty, um with all the cartoons. That is some of the hardest music ever to play. But man, is that fun! Huh. Yeah, and what amazes me, and I'm I'm sure you know about this, and and. Maybe you can talk to it. And again, I'm not a musician, but that's why I'm so impressed by it. I've, I've been told, you know, by a lot of composers of film music that, you know, all right, so we all show up at the studio, everybody gets a copy of the score and whatnot. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you might get one rehearsal and then boom, it's let's go. And, yeah. and I think to myself, how do you get 30, 40, 50, sometimes 90 or 100 people? To, to play something with basically no practice at all. I mean, that impresses me. I mean, talk about that if you wouldn't mind. Well, I, not having played on one of the sets for, for that, um, I can't really speak personally, but I do know that for film composers who are recording, it is a, a, a very specific time that you're, you you only get like one rehearsal and you know maybe a few a few times through. Um, you, you're generally going to have some of the best of the best. I would... I would no say the Hollywood orchestra uh, players, the um, the ones who do the soundtracks, are some of the best musicians in the world, and you know, and rightfully so. They it's it's just it's some phenomenal players, but also the conductor or the composers many times will conduct. They will, like George would would read the cues. Here's what's happening in the scene. And if you and if the players don't know what's happening in the scene, they will, you know, just play what they see. But if there's an intention behind this is a really sultry love scene or this is a really terrifying spooky scene, they will, you know, it, it tells them a lot of how to play, which is huh. which I think is important. It saves a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. And here's another silly question from a non-musician. All right, you know, I mean, I'm. When I'm watching an orchestra, it's like, okay, how important really is this conductor? I mean, I know he starts everybody <laughs> on time, but other than that, he's just waving his hands and those sorts of things. I mean, and you guys are, are, are perhaps focused on your on the score, the sheet music in front of you. I mean, help me understand. I mean, are, do you actually occasionally look at the conductor and, and what is he communicating to you? Or does that question make even sense? I don't know. Oh, of course, yeah. A lot of people ask that. Um, and it looks like musicians aren't looking at the conductor but in 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 reality they're always in our peripheral vision um, sometimes there'll be direct eye contact that we will try to connect with the conductor for important cues um, important downbeats um, but they they do or they should help shape the phrases and shape the intent um, to me a conductor should be something like an air traffic controller you know you're just telling the planes where to fly, how high to fly, so that they don't run into each other. The the planes are the musicians, and mm. the conductor is kind of guiding along by saying, you know, play this louder, play this faster. You know, winds, I need this quieter. Strings, bring up the sound here. Play it more off the string. So they're dictating and and kind of like controlling uh, eighty or ninety people on stage at one time. So it is a it's a balancing act. Of course, there's the the horror stories of egotistical conductors, which, 
you know that happens um, but it, it's a it's a big balance of understanding the uh, the purpose and a mutual respect between the orchestra and the conductor where you get the biggest successes yeah well I, I just you know, it, it, on my bucket list somehow <laughs> if I can somehow make it work just once just once I want to stand up in front of an orchestra with a baton Ah. Maybe, maybe just you know, conduct the James Bond theme and in uh, another Barry composition or something. Just you Ooh. know, dying wish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting it out there in case anybody can make it happen. Um, okay. All right. The um, the next cue. I, I love this one. Uh, great movie. Wonderful composer. I'm talking about the film Mask of Zorro, written by James Horner, and that was another one you wanted to uh, play. Tell us uh, a little bit about why you wanted to include that amongst your favorites. Yeah, it's, it feels like a guilty pleasure. This is another <laughs> this is another movie that I bought the soundtrack for because I just loved it so much. Um, just the way Horner like um, shapes the whole feel of the movie with the lushness and the mood, and there's a sentimental and a familiarity and a tantalizing quality all mixed up together with how he kind of unlay, unfolds the the opening line. And they he welcomes you in with this kind of like foot-stomping um, uh, Mexican um, traditional kind of dance. You can right. feel it in the music, and I just, I just love the invitation to buy into that, into that history, into that, um, the storyline of Zorro, and uh, it's just cool. It's very, it's just cool. Um, I just love it. That's, I can't improve upon that. I agree with you. Let's have a, <laughs> let's have a listen for ourselves again from the film Mask of Zorro. I believe it's in the main title. And it's written by composer James Horner.
The list of cues that you've provided to us probably gives us a little bit of insight on this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, other than George Clinton, who are the composers that you really like and why? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have to say, uh, John Barry was my gateway drug to <laughs> <laughs> to film scores, um, and primarily because that's what I, I, I first listened to with James Bond, and then it was Morricone, although when I was listening to these as a child, it, I didn't know who they were, um, but I wanted to be the next John Barry. I wanted to write movie music, and, and that was a style that I, I found just so um, compelling. Uh, Morricone's... <laughs> oh, sorry? No, and, and forgive me, but but here's here's something I find interesting that I that I read amongst film scoring aficionados on Facebook and whatnot. Sometimes Barry's get gets criticized for being too simplistic and repetitive and all that sort of stuff, and which I, I'm sorry, I don't get it. Where's that criticism come from? And I mean, it's not it's not real sophisticated music, is kind of what they say. I think it's jealousy, um, and I also think. <laughs> No, I'm serious. I yeah, think people, I know you are. Yeah. <laughs> I think people feel exposed. Um, and in, in, in music, in my field especially, and I'm dealing with a lot of um, contemporary classical composers, not film composers, but you know, orchestral classical composers, there is such a stigma that if you don't write something really difficult, really strange, really you know, out there, you're not going to be taken seriously. Um, and if you write something beautiful and simple, you're a joke. That's basically in a nutshell, and it's very, um, you know, I'm being very frank with you and your listeners. Well, I'll be frank with you if you'll be frank with me. How's that? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that there, you know, when you have audiences um, factored in, what's the audience going to like should be one of the baselines. And when I'm working with um, composers who are in the classical field, not film composers, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, this loop of who are you writing for? And then I give an example of you're writing uh, for an audience. I am your salesperson. Please write something I can feel good about selling. And if I feel good about selling it, they will buy it. And if they will mm. buy it, they will want more from you. So it's kind of an agreement. And, um, and I think that's where Barry is, is uh, he's a threat because it's so beautiful and it's so simple. It's hard to write simple, beautiful music, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, you, you mentioned also Morricone that I'm a big fan of. And, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and and uh, anybody else on your radar of that that, that kind of really you enjoy? Well, you know, it's, it's the weirdest thing. It's a director Quentin Tarantino. Um, he does a fantastic job of kind of sussing out these composers, like Django Unchained, the movie. He, there's, it's not just Morricone. Um, there's the um, Balakov, I think. Um, or, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. And um, the guy that wrote Day of Anger. Um, those are like spaghetti westerns. I've never seen the movies, but I love the music. Uh-huh. And, you know, when you start to find out who wrote this, who wrote Day of Anger, who wrote um, the real version of, of Django, you kind of go down rabbit holes to find out what else they made, what else they wrote. And it's just, it's fantastic. Those are my favorites. Okay, yeah, well, that's, a, that's a good list to say the least. No no question about it. In fact, speaking of uh, Morricone, the, uh, the next cue we were going to play comes from the film Eight, uh, Hateful Eight, which oh, yeah. I think is one of the last films he did. It's certainly one of the last major films he did. That's Tell the us last a little bit. one he won. Yeah. I'm sorry? 
That's he won a an Academy Award for that. I think it was the last film he he wrote. It might be. It might be. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that today. Yeah. I, um, the movie was epic. You know, it's a it's kind of a, yep. a western in in its own. Uh, but just the way it opens is just filled with like this sick fear and you you kind of get it you know something really horrible is going to go down and and that just feeling of anxiety and dread he captures so well with the um the contrabassoon it's just so gravelly and deep and just um the the melody is intoxicating it just kind of sets the tone and and for me uh it was a little bit different than his previous way earlier film scores and i just love the colors and i, I mean i love the movie of course but um, I'll listen to that. That's one of my most recent favorites that I'll listen to when I'm flying back and forth to places. It just mm. kind of puts me in a mood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves again from the film Hateful Eight, written by the maestro Ennio Morricone.
So, Holly, how do people uh, keep in touch with you or kind of know what you've got going on and uh, what gigs you're playing and those sorts of things? Well, the um, probably the fastest way is on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Easily found on all of those. I also have a website, hollymulcahy.com. And then rosasonora.com keeps track of where Rosa Sonora is being performed and with whom. Um, we just finished up our final Rose of Sonora performance in North Carolina last month, and the next season will begin with a, uh, the South Carolina Philharmonic, October 7th, and um, the, that website is constantly updating. Okay, and I'm sure that the, uh, uh, the Louisiana performance will be upcoming shortly. I hope so. I'll have to reach out. <laughs> I'll reach out to that executive director and I'll say, okay, yeah. "Hey, Frank Wilson wants to come. You better schedule oh, this." Oh yeah, oh yeah. That'll really turn his mind around. <laughs> oh, Frank Wilson said it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Holly, I can't tell you. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. You've been uh, a terrific guest. Really had some insightful comments and some terrific music to choose from. I, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. What a blast. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. And I, I continued success. I, I have no doubt that you will. And uh, I hope that Rosa Sonora continues to have its continued success as well. Well, thank you. Well, with that, uh, I want to thank not only our guest, Holly, but also all our listeners for tuning in today. And in particular, our patrons who uh, help support the program from through uh, Patreon.com. Thank you very much for that support. Much appreciated. And I guess with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name's Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?